You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Welcome to Nehemiah for the ninth time, which means we're about two-thirds of the way through. And some of the most important things in the book of Nehemiah happens in chapter 9. It's prayer. Now, we said from the outset that the book of Nehemiah in 13 chapters has nine prayers. So what's so unique or special about this one? Well, for one thing, it's the longest prayer in the entire Bible. And here's what I know. Prayer is how we process. So when you're in something, you're going through something, something is you're having to work out Before you talk to a person, you should talk to the Lord. That's what's happening in Nehemiah 9. They are verbally processing with the Lord. And then secondly, you really get to know who someone is as you hear them pray. And what you're going to hear in Nehemiah 9, you're going to eavesdrop on people praying and praying what they are praying exposes who they are, what they're worried about, or what what concerns they have. If you know someone who's praying and you overhear their prayers, you learn a lot. Like, wow, they have a lot of faith. Wow, they really love the Lord. Or, wow, they have a lot of fears. They're really going through some stuff. Or, you know, it sounds like they know about God, but I wonder if they really know who he is. You learn a lot by eavesdropping on someone's prayers. That's exactly what we're going to be doing today. So these people were Jewish. They were raised in a culture that was pretty largely spiritual, God-centered-ish. And as a result, they have been going through uh, the motions, though, for 141 years. We've learned that so far. That their city of Jerusalem had been abandoned. The temple, the place where they would go to worship God and hear from him in scripture had been closed for 141 years. They didn't really read the Bible. They knew a few stories. They didn't really pray unless there was a real crisis or emergency. Other than that, they're not really praying much, paying much attention to the Lord. They're not really living for God. He's not a part of their schedule. He's not a part of their budget. Maybe they keep a few holidays. It's kind of like the average American. And there's no real sense of zeal or urgency for the things of God. But then last week, chapter 8, they rediscover the Bible. And if we could interview someone from that day, they would probably have said something like this. All of a sudden, God was no longer on the periphery in my life. He was, the, he was central. All of a sudden, going to church was not something that someone had to drag me. I was willing to go. I wanted to go myself. I, I got a Bible. I started reading it and opening it, studying it, memorizing it. It was fascinating. It was interesting. And all of a sudden, I was engaged. I was activated in my faith. They go from a dead religion. And let me give you a few clues as to 
how we know it was a dead religion. Dead religion, first and foremost, is all external. It's not internal. They go through the motions, but they don't have the love. Jesus talks about religious people who outwardly everything looks great, but inwardly all he sees is death and decay. It's external, but it's not internal. They may go to church. They may do something religious, but if you look at their heart and mind, they don't really activate their faith. It's just sort of going through the motions. In addition, dead religion oftentimes is for human approval, not for God. You want people to think you're a good person, but it's not so much about what God sees. It's not so much about you want a relationship with him. It's just the approval of others. It's kind of like country club. Yeah, I'll maintain my membership just so I look like a decent citizen. What religion does as well, it hides rather than changes your true self. Religious people are always trying to maintain airs that they have their life together. They don't want anybody else to see that they're struggling or sinning or failing or needing God. It conceals who they truly are. And then lastly, religion in its negative sense is spirituality without the Holy Spirit. It's about what we think we're doing for God rather than what God does for us, in us, and through us. Revival, on the other hand, is about a relationship with a God who does work for you, in you, through you. Dead religion is you're doing maybe some spiritual things without the Holy Spirit. They have lived this way for a long time. Maybe some of you have lived this way for a long time. But there is a point at which you can get activated as they were where you can be filled with the Spirit as they were, where you can have enthusiasm as they did. So what happens is that they go from dead religion to a dynamic revival. They show up for worship. Here's how we know they were excited. Because we learned last week that sermon was six hours. (laughs) Not ours. Theirs. And the people responded so passionately. It was amen, amen, they were shouting. And we looked at this last week. They're singing to God. Sometimes they're kneeling before God because they're so heartbroken in knowing that they've sinned and they're humbly surrendering their lives to God. In addition, they are weeping because they are reminded of the goodness of God. And then what happens? They cancel work for a week. And they have a week-long Bible camp with worship. They needed more Bible. They needed more Holy Spirit. They needed more worship in God's presence. And here we find them praying, not just a short prayer, but a really long prayer. There are some times that it is perfectly fine to pray a short prayer, but there are some times that we need to really work things out with the Lord. And they're going to stop, and they're going to pray the longest prayer in the Bible, and this becomes for them a revival. The Holy Spirit's going to show up in a unique and powerful way. We see this throughout the Bible when the Holy Spirit falls on a group of people and it ignites within them a sense of, of, of passion and urgency for the things of God. 
what our nation needs is a revival. And let me say this. I'm all for elections. But if anyone is just hoping in elections, your hope is eventually going to disappoint you. That at the end of the day, what we need is not just an election to go our way. We need revival to come our way. We need people to meet Jesus. We need them to have a new nature. We need them to be born again and excited about the things of God. I'm all for election. I'm all for cultural change. But at the end of the day, until people are filled with the Spirit and have a love for God, things aren't going to change. And what we have seen in our nation's history are occasions of God's presence falling in a way that produces revival. I'll give you a couple of examples And I'm praying for revival, and I encourage you to do that. Pray for revival. Because if you look at everything, you're like, man, this world really looks dark, and the future pretty bleak. Yeah, it is. Unless God shows up as the X factor, and then things could be quite different. We saw this in the days of Jonathan Edwards. He began preaching at the age of 19 in 1722. The Great Awakening came to his church in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1734. Young people who had drifted away from the church, who were lukewarm, they didn't really care. They started hearing Jonathan Edwards' sermons and they were curious So they wanted to meet with him and ask some questions. And Pastor Edwards did indeed meet with them. And from there began a revival called the Great Awakening. His most famous sermon was sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, it really was all about God's grace. That if God didn't extend grace to us, we're done. But today... It's like we've reversed that. It's God in the hands of angry sinners. Rather than God changing us, we want to change God. Rather than God judging us, we want to judge God. But in that day, there was a mass revival. And what happens when there is a mass revival? Those who know the Lord get really excited about the Lord. The prodigals who have strayed from the Lord, they run back to God. And then their passion becomes contagious. And those who don't know the Lord all of a sudden begin to know the Lord. Jonathan Edwards then said there were five marks of a true revival. By the way, Jonathan Edwards, before he died, uh, became president of Princeton University, which was a Presbyterian seminary at the time. He got into office, he was elected to be president, and he died before he could really um, take hold of that office. But Jonathan Edwards had these five marks of a revival, true revival. He says, number one, it exalts Jesus Christ. True revival exalts Jesus Christ, that all of a sudden, People are talking about Jesus, singing to Jesus, excited about Jesus, not just religion or morality or spirituality, but Jesus. Number two, true revival attacks the power of darkness. 
It calls people to repent of sin, and it begins to set culture straight. Number three, it exalts scriptures. All of a sudden, people are like, I like the Bible. Teach me the Bible. Can I get a Bible? My friend needs a Bible. I was reading the Bible. I'm studying the Bible. God is working through his word. Number four, true revival seeks to lift up sound doctrine. That there is no room for false teaching and heretics and compromisers and editors. Just messengers and obeyers. I don't think that's a word, but it is now. And then lastly, true revival promotes love to God and man. All of a sudden, you're like, God loves me, and I love God, and I want to have a love for people from the love that God has given me. So revival goes from God to you, and then it goes through you to others as the love of grace and love and grace of God spread. So a second example then in our nation, fast forward 200 years from the time of Jonathan Edwards, there was a movement from the late 1960s, early 1970s, which was recently documented in the movie, Jesus Revolution. It was, it was referred to as the Jesus movement. It was a day not too dissimilar from our own. There was a very divided culture, the Vietnam War was the main event. People were upset with political leadership. The economy was in the tank. We had the false trinity of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In addition, the hippie movement came into existence, and it was largely driven by demonic Eastern religions, drug use and abuse, gender confusion, sexual rebellion. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar, but that's what they were dealing with. And suddenly, God took the hippies and made many of them worshipers of Jesus. The churches didn't know what to think. They were like, well, these people don't, <laughs> they don't look like us. We're not so sure they fit in, right? They don't look the part. But the next thing you know, they start to fall in love with Jesus. And there's this massive Revival movement. And it led to expository Bible teaching and teaching through the books of the Bible because the hippies were like, we don't trust just any authority. So you needed to go through the Bible because they would only trust the authority of God's word. This is the same kind of thing that we'll see in Nehemiah 9. It is the Old Testament recording and reporting of what happens when God shows up in church and changes people. And then we see that God has visited them because they are applying the gift of repentance. So here's the story. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. That was their way of repenting. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins, not other people's sins, <laughs> their own, and the sins of their ancestors, so their generational sins. They stood where they were, 
and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's three hours that they stood and listened and read from God's word. And then they spent another quarter of the day, another three hours in confessing in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Now here's their prayer. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. That's the creation story from Genesis. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God. You chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. So now we're stepping into the book of Exodus. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all of his officials and all the people of his land. You, you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them by a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. You are a forgiving God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. Now we have moved into the book of Numbers. 
You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. This is from the book of Joshua. You subdued them before them, the Canaanites, who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They they reveled in your great goodness, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest... They again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of their neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all our people. In other words, that's our political leaders, our spiritual leaders, our families from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them and the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Here's the big idea expressed in those final verses We are slaves. Because we are sinners. You know that someone has been visited by the Holy Spirit when they repent of their sin. 
Because there is not room in your life for God when you are also consumed in your sin. And then you realize who God is and you want to get rid of your sin to make more room for God. That's what they're doing. They're repenting. Look, we're all sinners by nature and by choice. And as sinners, we have a few options. Number one, we can deny it. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. You're wrong. You're lying. Number two, we can celebrate it. That's what we tell people. You don't need to repent of it. You need to celebrate it. You don't need to change. God doesn't want you to change. You just need to celebrate who you are and what you have done. A third option is we try to hide it. I hope I don't get caught. I hope no one finds out. All that leads to is major stress and anxiety. Or number four, we can make excuses. I was tired. It was a long day. Those people make me crazy. Or sometimes it's even our cultural heritage that we blame it on. You know, like I'm Irish, so there, you know, that's, we get drunk and yell. Those are our two contributions. And Riverdance, our three contributions to world history. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm hot-headed, hot-headed, I'm, I'm Irish, I'm Italian, I'm, you keep naming it. So the other option is when you realize your sin, you repent of it, and that's truly a gift. And what repentance is, it's turning from your sin and turning to God. So when we sin, we literally turn our back on God. And it's like we're saying, God, I'm not following, I'm not looking, I'm not listening. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to move toward my sin. And then repentance is, I turn from my sin, and I turn to God. Okay, God, what do you say? I'm listening. What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin and turning to God. Jesus says it this way, repent and believe. So I'm turning from my sin and I'm trusting, I'm believing in God who forgives and saves. Now, I'm a sinner. I mean, all of you know that. We've been together long enough. That's not a surprise to you. By repenting, we are getting honest with who we are. So here's the good news. God can change who we are. The reason that some people struggle with repentance is because they believe that they think that they can't change. Well, truthfully, you can't, but God can change you. So you don't need to celebrate who you are. You don't need to hide who you are. You don't need to tolerate who you are. You need to confess who you are so that God can change who you are. So then what I love from the story from Nehemiah is they get very focused on God. Up until this point, God was just a fleeting moment in their history, a committed idea. He was more of a concept than a person, more of on the periphery than central for 141 years. But the totality of this lengthy prayer is that it is really God-centered 
So let me mention to you a few things about God from their prayer. Number one, he is the only God. They say in their prayer, you alone are the Lord. You alone. There is no other God. There are not many ways. There is only one way. There are not many gods. There is only one God. There are not many saviors. There is only one savior. There's no one like God. There's no one alongside of God. There's no one who excels beyond God. Number two, he is our creator. They say you made the heavens and the starry host and the earth. Our God made our planet. Our God made our cosmos. Our God made us in his image and likeness. Our God made the animals, his lower creation. Our God made angels to worship and serve him. Every one of us is made by God. We find our purpose for in God. We find our dignity in God. We find life in God. Since we come from him, there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no value apart from him. Number three, he is the covenant maker. The prayer goes on to say, you are the Lord God who chose Abram. Abram was not a believer at the time. The Bible tells us that his father, Terah, was a pagan. Abram, who became Abraham, didn't grow up in a believing home. So what that means is that God chose a nobody from nowhere and put a call and destiny on him and his family. God makes a covenant with his people. Once he says yes to you, he always says yes to you. God can't love you any more than he does. And he won't love you any less. There is nothing you can do to undo the love of God for you that comes out in the grace of Jesus Christ. When God has determined to adopt you as his child, he never orphans you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never abandon you. He'll never betray you. Every promise that God makes, he is faithful to keep. Our national politicians, they can't keep their promises no matter how hard they try. Couples on their wedding day exchanging their vows invariably fall short. But our God makes promises. And every promise that he makes, he keeps. You will see Jesus face to face. You will rise from the dead. You will enter into the kingdom of God. You will have the tears wiped from your eyes by the nail-scarred hand of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number four, he is glorious. They pray, you made a name for yourself. We live in a world where everybody's trying to make a name for themselves. We exist to make much of one name. Philippians 2 says, there is one name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. At the end of the day, there is one name. It's the name of Jesus. Our God shows up. Our God is living. Our God is active. Our God is powerful. Our God comes to save us and his name is Jesus Number five, our God is good. 
In their prayer, they recognize, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That is a quote from Exodus 34, the most quoted verse in the entire Bible, in the Bible. It's where God comes down and says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I forgive sinners. I don't let the guilty go unpunished. You need to know that this God is Jesus Christ. You need to know that you are a sinner. You need to know that he loves you. He's abounding in love. That he's a merciful God. He's a forgiving God. He is an exceedingly patient God. He has endured with you to this moment. And he loves you. He will take you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And if you've not given yourself to this God, you give him your sin and he becomes your savior. Two other ones. Number six, he is our constant savior. But in your mercy, they pray, You did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God is not going to destroy you. He is going to deliver you. He is not going to forsake you. He is going to save you. Over and over, God shows up. And what happens is, just like them, God delivers us, God redeems us, God saves us. And what happens in a short period of time? We go back to our foolish ways. And then we wonder, Is God done with me? Is he going to abandon me? Is he sick of me? Is he tired of me? No. Because he grabs us like a father taking a child out of harm's way and draws us to himself. And he spares us over and over and over again. For those prodigals who are hearing this, for those who have wandered and lost their way, the Father's hand is right there. He loves you. He's for you. He's not done with you. He's not sick of you. He's not overwhelmed by you because last but not least, number seven, our God is a sin forgiver. Any sinners in the house is just me. (laughs) You need to accept the bad news that you are a sinner to receive the good news of Jesus as Savior. Here's a part of their prayer. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. They repent. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And there is a refreshing. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.